You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your host, Hannah Seymour, and I'm in the studio with the one and only Michael Easley. (laughs) Hey, Dad. Good afternoon. Set your sights higher. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So, Dad, as long as I can remember, you have always been very particular about which... (laughs) More? Yeah. More? Particular on maybe a few more things than this. Very particular about which translation of the Bible you like to use when you're studying? Well, I started out with the New American Standard many, many years ago and kind of stuck with it for a long time. And the more I studied it, you know, you become romantically attached. You like a particular version. And the more you study, the more you read. And so uh, probably since uh, I was about 16 years old, I was reading the New American Standard. Wow, for that long. Yeah. Did you ever try a different translation? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Being raised Catholic, of course, we had the New American Bible, which uh, has different books in it. And I used that as a child and through uh, junior high school. And then later on, of course, the NIV came out. Mm -hmm. And we all rushed to the New International Version. And while it was easier to read, it seemed a little bit oversimplified to me. And there were also some inconsistencies in the way they translated things. So I read the NIV and studied it for a while, but I found myself going back to the New American Standard. And later on, of course, when other Bibles came out, like the ESV and the Holman Christian Standard, I actually taught out of the ESV for over a year, and uh, the same with the Holman Christian Standard, because I did appreciate both those translations, but there were things in them that I had trouble with. And so that took me back to the New American Standard. What are you talking about when you're saying there are things you had trouble with? Well, for one thing, I'm a stickler on what they call the divine pronoun. He, you, him. When it refers to God or Jesus, I like to see that capital letter. And uh, most translations have eliminated that now. And the, it's not a big deal. It's not like I think it's sacrilegious. But if a person's reading a narrative or even uh, more so in the Psalms, if it's not capitalized, you, or he or him, I'm not always sure who the author is referring to. Sure. So especially in in some wisdom literature, it's very complex even for a person that reads the Bible a lot. So when you drop that divine capitalization in the pronouns, that's disappointing to me. Another one, it's a big stickler for me, is the word chesed in the Old Testament is rendered loving kindness every time in the New American Standard. The NIV does a number of synonyms. They'll use love, mercy, kindness. ESV is consistent with steadfast love. But to me, it's such an important term. I would say in some ways it's the most important term in the Old Testament. Hmm. So when I'm reading the New American Standard Bible, I always know when chesed pops up because I see that cumbersome English word loving kindness. Got it. Thirdly, what we call suppletions or additions in the English Bible. If you take all these Bibles side by side, and you lay them out and look at a passage, if the word is in italics in the New American Standard, that's a word the translators have put there to tell you it's not in the original text. If you read any other Bible, they don't do that. So you're reading along a passage, and it might have some words in there that aren't from the original. That's what I call an interpretive rendering, meaning the translation committees on the NIV, ESV, whomever, have added those words to help the English reader. That's not wrong or terrible, Mm -hmm. but it can be just enough misleading, in my opinion, that I want to go back to how can an English reader know that he or she is reading the closest rendering of the Hebrew and Greek translations in their English text? Got it. So is it normal for a church to say, this is the translation of the Bible that we're going to be using? We recommend that you buy that Bible. We're only preaching from this 
Is it normal for a church to declare a certain version the version? <laughs> well, I, I think that has happened. I think certain churches have pew Bibles still, and of course that standardizes. And remember too, uh, before people were super literate, before the Bible was versified, you turned to a page. Right. You didn't turn to Second Kings chapter four, verse twelve. You turned to page three hundred ninety-six. You love hearing those pages turn. Right. And preach. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think what happens in most churches the pastor or the primary teaching individual has a preference. And so there's a bell curve in the audience in the congregation that's going to say, well, I want to follow the preacher as best I can. There's also among that continuum people that I'm always going to use the King James. I don't care what the pastor uses. I love the ESV. I'm going to stick with the ESV. And that doesn't bother me. It doesn't make me upset. At our church, all the pastors teach from the same translation. So there's a consistency from the pulpit. Now we know in the pew people are carrying their favorite Bible, not always what we teach from. Mm -hmm. So thinking about all of these different translations, you and I wanted to talk to an expert to really unfold the story of how did we get our English Bible. So tell us about your guest today. Well, there are lots of experts you could go to, but I don't know anyone quite as qualified as Dr. Edwin Bloom. And Dr. Bloom has uh, two doctorates. He did his Dallas Seminary THM degree and then a THD at Dallas. He went on to the University of Basel, Switzerland, and got another doctorate of theology. He's a brilliant man. He's taught at several Bible colleges. He taught at Dallas Seminary for 17 years, at Phoenix Seminary for three years. He's taught Bible classes for probably north of 30 years. He's been a pastor a total of 20 years at different churches across his career and ministry. He became the general editor and translator of the Holman Christian Standard Bible after Art Farstad passed away. Dr. Bloom has a near photographic memory. There was a time when he read a book a day. Wow. He's he's a little scary. (laughs) A little scary. (laughs) Truly a brilliant individual. I think at one time he was fluent in more than a dozen languages. And so uh, I thought, let's get Ed on the phone and and help us walk through this uh, at a much better level than I could ever manage. Absolutely. No (laughs) offense, Dad. None taken. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's jump into that interview right now. Well, Dr. Ed Bloom, it's, it's great to have you on the broadcast. Thanks for your time. Good to be with you. Let's go to the Old Testament. We don't have a document like a book that we hold today. And of course, everyone today is looking at it on their phone. <laughs> you know, they don't even carry a book with them anymore. Uh, but prior to that, give us the timeline. Right. Moses to Malachi is a thousand plus years. Right. That period for us, we don't have a lot of information about how the books were carried around and preserved. Right. Moses, of course, was from a tribe of Levi. And the Jewish people had 12 tribes, and this one tribe was chosen by God uh, to be sort of a special priestly tribe, and they were also a teaching tribe. They had the responsibility for taking care of the uh, sacred altar, the Ark of the Covenant, and eventually the temple. And in the temple, they would preserve the writings. The Jewish people, of course, preserved their scripture very carefully. As evidence of this, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is of interest to a lot of people. When you say, what did people write on in the ancient world? Well, they had different ways of preserving things in the ancient world. I mean, people started writing, as far as we know, way back at at the beginning of recorded history, which we would say, history starts around 3300 before Christ, B.C. 
and people wrote on clay tablets. Right. And in Egypt, they wrote things on walls, they carved things into stone, and the Egyptians had a plant called papyrus. And papyrus was sort of the precursor of what we call modern paper. Ed and I talked at length about clay tablets, about pottery, about papyrus, and eventually the medium we know as paper. Paper, of course, was a very expensive process. It took a long time to develop it into a cost-effective way. In fact, by the time paper became available in the 1500s, one mill in Europe could produce 4,000 to 5,000 sheets of paper a day. So we've made a huge advancement in the time from writing on clay to paper technologies. But to move from paper, to understand how you and I got our English Bible, Ed and I then began talking about one of the most important figures in history, John Wycliffe. So tell us a little bit about Wycliffe. Wycliffe is one of these interesting figures. He was an Oxford philosopher and theologian. So he's before the Reformation. He's before printing. He's before, really, paper. Those things are interesting because the Roman Catholic Church had become extremely popular and extremely powerful. The Pope was more powerful than any king. In John Wycliffe's day, the Church owned almost one-third of the entire British Isles. Wycliffe becomes sort of the authority, and he comes to stress the authority of the Scripture in religion and government rather than church rule and tradition. And that's a big threat to the Catholic Church. Big threat to the Catholic Church, and the uh, Catholic Church, maybe a couple hundred years earlier, was so powerful that kings could be almost kicked off their throne because the Pope had the power to declare an interdict on a country. All the power was in the papacy. So Wycliffe began writing against the papacy. What he decided was, for people to know what the Bible says, they needed to be able to read it in their own language. So he's a real forerunner of reform in the Church. Wycliffe had some followers that helped him, and he began to translate from the Latin into Middle English. And the translation was finished by his followers after he died. And the Catholic Church said that it was a death penalty for the possession of a Wycliffe Bible. By the way, Charles Ryrie, the Ryrie Study Bible, and one of our professors at Dallas Seminary, he died not too long ago, and his Bible collection was put up for sale, and the collection sold for around $8 million. Wow. And he had a complete copy of the Wycliffe translation that sold for $1.4 million. Wow. Now, you got to remember, this is a handwritten document. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 1384 Goodness. is when Wycliffe died. After he had died, the Roman Catholic Church dug up his bones and burned him that he was a heretic because he was stressing the authority of Scripture alone. That was the first translation of the whole the Latin Bible into English. And it's amazing that over 250 portions of that handwritten Bible have survived to this day. Hmm. And there's only, believe it or not, 64 manuscripts of Chaucer. (laughs) I took one course in Chaucer that about undid me. (laughs) Let's go to Tyndale. 1494, William Tyndale comes along. Here's a man who is learned, maybe more learned in certain respects than Wycliffe. Tyndale has been at Oxford and Cambridge, 
Now, you see, what's happened between Wycliffe and Tyndale, paper mills are printing paper, printing presses are printing books, and books are being translated. So, for example, Tyndale would have a published copy printed of a Hebrew Bible, and he would have a copy of a Greek Bible as well. So he knew Hebrew and he knew Greek. Now, you got to remember, this is quite rare. If you look at the church fathers, say Augustine basically wrote and worked with a Latin Bible. He had just a smidgen of Greek. He had no Hebrew. So the greatest scholar of the Western Church didn't know Greek, hmm. and he didn't know Hebrew. If you look at all Well, let's back up a bit and mention a very important man named Martin Luther. Uh, there was a man named Martin Luther. Luther, in 1517, was working on a translation from Greek to German. And at the same time, about 1520, there was a man named Zwingli, and he was working on a translation into Swiss German. By the time Tyndale starts translating and working, he has a little help in that he uh, was able to get some knowledge of how translations work from Luther and Zwingli, and he was able to translate the whole New Testament and start work on the Old Testament before he was killed. When you look at Tyndale's life, you got Tyndale, you got Zwingli, you got Luther. They're taking either Latin or Greek and Hebrew, and they're translating it into common languages in their world, correct? Correct. And why are they doing this? As the Renaissance, uh, the study of ancient things is progressing, people are having a desire to read things from the past. They don't know Latin, but they do know their own language, and they'd like to have something in their own uh, language. So, for example... Well, what the modern reader forgets is that Wycliffe and Tyndale were not only doing what was considered illegal, it ended up in Tyndale's dramatic demise him, and he was arrested, imprisoned, strangled, and burned at the stake. And as he was dying, he cries out, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Hmm. And of course, at that time, Henry VIII had just broken with the Pope and declared himself the head of the English Church. He, at first, was not interested in having the Bible transmitted, but eventually, he listened to his staff. He allowed the Bible to be printed. In those days, the following kings decided that people needed to read the Bible. And so they had Bibles printed, and every parish priest was to have a Bible, and they chained these Bibles to a piece of the altar or to a place where it could be read. And people would come in, and believe it or not, there would be a number of people who would just sit there and listen, and somebody would read the Bible out loud, because Bibles at that point were too expensive for the average individual to own. But each church now could have a Bible, and the king was permitting it. So Think about I mean, walking into a church and seeing this big book chained to a pulpit. The Bible's availability was still far from reach from the average person. Many iterations come along before we have what we call the King James Bible. In the 1500s, we have the Coverdale Bible, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible is printed, Taverner's Bible is printed, and then the most popular Bible of the time is the Geneva Bible. It is the first English Bible that has verses and is printed in Roman type. While the Geneva Bible is the most popular Bible for many years, the king hated it that is, King James, because it made comments about some kings who were evil and wicked. 
Now, believing he had the divine right of being a king, that he was king over the church, he wanted a Bible that did not have those notes. So he authorizes the printing or actually a translation of the revision of earlier Bibles. And this becomes known as the King James Bible. King James Bible. So the King James Bible, we should we should probably make clear to people, is not the first English translation. Obviously, you know, we've been talking about there was a Tyndale. Before Tyndale, there was the Wycliffe. So if you go Wycliffe to Tyndale, to Coverdale, to Matthew, to the Great Bible, to Tafner, to Geneva, and the Bishop's Bible, you have ten translations or reiterations of the English translation that were the background of the King James Bible. So the King James Bible was not, technically speaking, a totally fresh translation. Tyndale makes up about 75% of the wording. So the King James Bible then was printed, and it became popular because it was a very good summary of all the previous translations. It had all the advantages of the Geneva Bible, and it was published with the king's permission, and it became extremely popular. Now, here's another thing that people don't know about the King James Bible. The King James Bible was copyrighted. In other words, there's a crown copyright. So when the people came to America and set up printing presses in the United States, you could not print a King James Bible in America Hmm. until the Revolutionary War. And after the Revolutionary War, then nobody paid any attention to the king's copyright. They went ahead and printed King James Bibles. Now, so let's come forward then. King James becomes the primary English document. Now, this begins to take on a life of its own. And many other English translations come. Uh, and let's fast forward through some of those key English translations to where we are today. Okay, let's just say people became a little bit more dissatisfied with the King James when 1870, the Church of England decides to do a revision of the King James because many of the documents that supported the King James were not the most accurate documents. And also the King James Version, the language was changing. So English was changing. So a group of scholars got together in 1870, and they worked on it, and they also invited an American committee to work on it. And it was published in the 1870s. The Americans were not real happy with it, but they had signed an agreement not to publish anything separate until 1901. And so in 1901... The Americans published the American Standard Version, but the King James is still... Now, even though we have this accumulation of English Bibles being translated, this is the first American Standard Version, meaning the first Bible that is actually printed in America. Uh, But the King James is still the most popular, and the King James Bible became the most popular as far as sales until the New International Version, and that was the first translation that has eclipsed the sale annually of King James Bibles. So in today's When I was in seminary, we were taught two distinct ways of Bible translation, form equivalency versus dynamic equivalency. Form equivalency tries to be word for word literal. Dynamic equivalency is more of a concept. It's still literal, but we're trying to use language that bridges time and usage. Now, technically, form equivalency is a theory, because you can't translate word for word in any language. 
For example, it takes thousands of more words to translate something into English than the language it comes from. So what we're trying to differentiate here is do we take the concept and make it understandable to the masses, or do we err on a side of a literal or more wooden translation? Now for simplicity, let me just say a form equivalency Bible would be a King James Version or a New American Standard. They would lean more to being form equivalent. A dynamic equivalency Bible would be like the NIV. Now, Dr. Bloom and I talked at length about this deep into the weeds, but this led into a discussion about how we got what became the Living Bible and today what is known as the New Living Translation. I mean, uh, an interesting analysis of that is the Living Bible. There was a man who worked for a publishing company, Moody, and he had a bunch of kids. And the popular Bible that was considered the most accurate was the American Standard Version in his day. And his kids at the daily devotions couldn't understand what he was talking about. So as he traveled each day on the elevated, he paraphrased the literal translation, the American Standard Version, into what he would say is normal English. And it became the Living Bible. And he would read it to his children. And people thought, hey, that's a great idea. And uh, (laughs) somebody sent a copy of this first paraphrase to Billy Graham. Billy Graham held it up at one of his meetings and says, this is one of the best things since sliced bread. (laughs) (laughs) But nobody wanted to publish it. And so he published it himself. And eventually it became Tyndale Publishing House. But he then was criticized for not being a real translation, but a paraphrase. And so he got some scholars, and they said, try to keep it as close as you can to the Living Bible, which had sold 40 million copies. And they came up with the new Living Translation in 1996. So, As Dr. Bloom and I talked about this, we have to keep in mind, we have so many English translations of the Bible. It's almost ridiculous. From the American Standard to the New Living Translation, King James, the New King James, RSV, ESV, the American Standard, the New American Standard, on and on it goes, right? Well, think about other countries and other language groups. For example, if you go into Nigeria, there are two Nigerian translations. If you go to China, there's one Chinese Bible. Of course, that's a state religion, so it's controlled by the state. So let's just say globally, if you think of a primary English reader, that's somewhere north of 3% of the global population. Not that many people around the globe cannot read English, but their primary language being English. And we have more iterations of an English Bible than any country in their own given language. So keeping in mind, we're overflowing with English renderings that we have such an affection to a particular version or iteration. So Dr. Bloom and I began to chat about what is it about this particular rendering? If you like the King James, ESV, NASB, NIV, why is there such a romance or a connection to that particular English Bible? It great. It illustrates my, my big question is why are we so obsessed? You know, I prefer a translation. I've preached out of many different English texts over the years. I've tried to change text. <laughs> I come back to the one I prefer. What is it about us? that we have this proclivity to say only the King James, only the NIV, only the ESV, only the Holman Christian Standard or the Christian Standard Bible now? Well, I think there's a number of factors. People are traditionalists. They get used to something. I wear Levi's almost every day. But there are some people who never wear Levi's. They wear khakis every day. Are you a khaki wearer? I'm a Wrangler wearer, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But Wranglers are uh, made out of denim, right? Wranglers are for real men. 
Right. <laughs> Man, that <I> right. <laughs> Actually, I have a pair of Wranglers on right now. Good for uh, you. Yeah. I feel better. <laughs> but, I mean, we have another thing in America. We are a very competitive society, and we are a very, I guess, the essence of capitalism is making money. If you want to use a printed Bible that's in copyright, you pay a 7% royalty to that copyright owner. If the person wants to use the new American standard, he has to pay a 13% royalty. Zondervan right now is the dominant publisher, and that's controlled by Harper and Row, which controls the Wall Street Journal as well. So there's a lot of political things that go on. One of the reasons why the Holman was done was because Zondervan was regendering the standard Bible. That became a political issue. So we are living in changing days. The West is becoming more secular, more anti-Christian, and many other countries, like, say, China, people are giving their lives. Pastors are being thrown into prison, and the Word of God is something that people have given their lives for. I'm sure they're doing that in many countries to sell Bibles, to possess Bibles, to print Bibles. We don't realize how difficult it is in certain parts of the world. You know, as you listen to Ed and I have this conversation, I hope you're challenged and reminded afresh of the privilege you have to open that Bible, that Bible you have in your hand or on your technology. It's a remarkable story and one that, frankly, most Christians have no concept of how we got this thing called the English Bible. Dr. Bloom has written, From Wycliffe in 1384 to 1611, many scholars labored to produce this classic. A number gave their lives so that the average English reader would be able to own and read God's word and his message in their language. It is so humbling and kind of overwhelming to think (laughs) about really, truly what it took to have the English Bible that I have the privilege of reading from. I mean, I own multiple copies Mm -hmm. in my own house, and I forget a lot that that is not the case for most of the world around us. You know, if we were to go back to the Holocaust and how some of the prisoners had little shards and pieces of paper that they would copy, uh, write down phrases of verses that they had memorized as a child. And that was all they had. Wow. You know, and here we are with how many Bibles on the shelves and how many we pick up any one of our devices and we have every translation at our disposal. The frightening part to me, though, is that we don't read it. Yeah. It's not accessibility. It's not lack of options, right. color, shape, sizes. Right. Do you want a hand size one? One you can journal in? A Duck Dynasty one. <laughs> there you go. I mean, it goes on ad nauseum. But do we read it? Yeah. Do people actually get up in the morning, open the book, and read it? I'm convinced the Christian life is grounded on a three-legged stool. God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. If you and I aren't exposed to God's Word on a regular, ongoing basis, we don't know what we don't know. We forget everything. We need God's Spirit then to empower us, to control us, to help us retain and apply what we've learned. And I need God's people to shape me, to round off the rough edges, to love me, to encourage me, to walk with me. God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. For our friends who are listening, if you're going to share this podcast, the primary hope and prayer I have is that people will get their nose in the book. And it is the living Word of God. And when you read stories of these people that died to put it in plain language for you and me, It should motivate us to want to open this living word that changes lives forever. 
If you want to learn more about how we got our English Bible, Dr. Bloom suggested a book by F.F. Bruce, History of the Bible in English. If you go to our website, we'll have a direct link for you there, michaelincontext.com. Thanks for listening.